Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. On July the 6th, 1999, there was a 27-year-old man named Daniel Dukes who went to SeaWorld in Orlando, and he gave every appearance of being just like any other tourist. But at closing time, he went and hid himself away uh, and waited until everybody had emptied and the park was cleared. And then sometime during the night, he made his way over to the pool where they kept a five-ton killer whale named Tillicum. He stripped down to his swimming trunks, folded his clothes neatly and put them away, and jumped in the pool. No one knows exactly what happened next. Some experts believe that the whale may have been so startled by the man's sudden appearance that he dived under the water and created a vortex which pulled Daniel under the water and rendered him helpless. Others believe it's more likely that the whale thought he was some kind of toy that had been tossed into the the pool and tossed him around for fun for a little bit, keeping him underwater until he drowned. But either way, the next morning, Daniel Duke's body was found laying across Tillicum's back. Mark Atterbury shared this story in his book, The Samson Syndrome, And Atterbury is talking about the ways that we think that we're stronger than what we really are. And he says this, We climb over fences not to wreak havoc, not for destruction, but simply to have a little fun. But we underestimate the danger. We get ensnared, and sin grabs us in its teeth, and it won't let us go. And I think, what is that but a perfect picture of what adultery does? Adultery and sexual sin is a danger that many refuse to see, especially in our culture today. And the reckless pursuit of sensual pleasure can be summed up in statements like this. It just felt so good, I couldn't help myself. Or, we were just having some fun. But adultery has horrible consequences, and we'll see that tonight. Many of us have experienced the conflicts that result from adultery. So, they don't even really need to be stated all that much. But God has set us a fence to protect us from the danger that lurks beyond. It's not there to hinder your fun, but to protect you. And God gave us this command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Let's read that together, and then I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. Do not commit adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you this evening as we gather together that we get to spend time feasting on your word. And Lord, that we get to spend time later feasting on the physical food that you've provided for us, the blessings that you've given us, and to spend time partaking in fellowship with one another. But Lord, tonight I pray that you would speak to our hearts first, that you would fill us spiritually before we are filled physically. Let us leave from here knowing that your spirit has ministered to us, drawn us closer to you. Lord, let us live according to the principles we find here tonight. Pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. 
Well, as Paul said last week, there's not a whole lot to, uh, to break down in four words. So there, it's hard in one sense to think of how are you going to work through this. But the reality is there's a substantive amount of data from the, from the biblical writers about adultery and marital fidelity uh, that I want to walk through with you tonight. And so before we get into it too deep, we need to start by defining our terms. Now, do not commit is pretty straightforward. It means don't do it. But what is adultery? Well, the word that's used here refers to sexual activity that is between a married person and another person who is not their spouse. This is different from the word we translate as fornication because fornication refers to sexual activity between two people who aren't married. And the focus of this verse is on the marital relationship, and I think there's a good reason for it, and we'll look at that here in a minute. But I think there's a theological reason that God used that. The word that we translate here as adultery is also a word that can be translated as idolatry. So as we seek to understand this commandment, it's, under, it's important that we understand God's ideal for marriage and how that ideal relates back to God and his nature and his relationship with us. So since this passage, I believe, is focused on marriage, we must define then what marriage is. Marriage is a permanent covenant in which a man and a woman commit themselves to one another emotionally, spiritually, and sexually in the presence of God. It's a commitment between the three, a covenant promise. So we need to begin by looking to see how marriage started. So we'll start with my marital fidelity being founded. And if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We find that marriage was not humanity's idea. We didn't come up with it. It was God's idea. Look with me at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And then he talks about how he brought all the wild animals to Adam to name them and to have dominion over them. And then skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at the place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So first, marriage is a divine institution. Marriage is a divine institution. It was God who established the marriage. It was he who created the first man. And then he created the first woman, whom Adam would later name Eve, out of the flesh of man. He actually took the rib from his side and created them, created the woman. But it goes further than that, because not only did God create both, but notice that God was the one who brought them together. You know, Chelsea has two unmarried sisters. And between Chelsea and her mother, they're always trying to set them up with somebody. Maybe some of you that are here and single, you know what, I, what that's like. 
There's always somebody who has to play matchmaker. Well, in this case, there was a divine matchmaker. For notice that he knew what Adam needed. He created the perfect match for Adam. And then notice what he did in verse 22. It says, he brought the woman to the man. He introduced them. God performed then the first wedding ceremony as he has witnessed to Adam's vow in verse 23, where he says, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's an identification there. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man, and he accepted responsibility for his wife. The first marriage gives us a picture of what is to be expected what is acceptable? What is forbidden in marriage? And in the New Testament, when we get to that here in a little bit, we'll see that Jesus and Paul both look to this first marriage in their teaching about marriage. They look to it about the teaching about divorce. They look to this image in their teaching about remarriage. But what we find is that God founded marriage and therefore made marriage a holy union. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. Marriage is holy because God established marriage as the holy union of two becoming one flesh. Two becoming one flesh. Think about that. Marriage is a man and a woman coming together to become one. When God established the marriage, he saw that the man was lacking in something. So he created the woman as something that was different yet compatible with the man. The female is complementary to the man. God created the woman as a helper to correspond to him. Notice that God didn't create a harem. He didn't give Adam a whole bunch of wives. He gave, her, gave Adam one wife. God didn't create another man. For Adam, he created a woman, something that was different. And there's a good reason for this. Notice, if you look back one chapter, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God created humanity in his image, but the lone man was not sufficient. The one creation was not enough to fully reflect God's image. And so to be a better picture of God's nature, he created them man and woman, two different sexes. And he founded marriage together as one man with one woman for a lifetime. The covenant between the man and the woman and God himself. But also notice that marriage is a sacred institution. We call marriage holy matrimony. What does matrimony mean? Matrimony simply means marriage. It's a fancy word. But what does holy mean? What does it mean to be holy? Well, there's two ideas that come in this term holy. Holiness can, first of all, mean that it's related to the divine. So in this case, marriage we've already seen is holy because God established it. Marriage is also holy because it reflects God's nature. But there's another aspect to holiness. Holiness can mean to be set apart. And marriage we see in this 
chapter is set apart from every other human relationship, look at chapter 2, verse 24 again. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and the two become one flesh. So marriage is set apart from every other human relationship. It's closer even than the parent-child relationship. It's the strongest of all relationships, or at least it's supposed to be. And there are three words or three phrases which describe the marital relationship here. The first one is that the man and the woman, they leave the, their mother and their father. They leave behind the previous family unit. They leave them behind to create a new social unit, something that's new, something that's independent from what had existed before. But second of all, it says that they cleave or they bond with one another. The new couple merges together in every area of life. And there's a transparency in the relationship, a close bonding that is both spiritual and emotional. And it starts with that. And then the two become so close, the scripture says the two become one flesh. And the union is so great because the two have bonded emotionally. They've bonded spiritually. And then they finally, on that basis... Bond together sexually, physically. The best sex ever begins with emotional and spiritual bonding of the two individuals. This is how God designed it to work. The two leave from their previous bonds, the parental bonds. They become spiritually and emotionally bonded to each other, and that culminates in the sexual expression of that oneness. So from this union, God designed that the new flesh would come to be. This is how the couple fulfills the mandate we find in Genesis 1.28, where God said, uh, he would bless them and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and some do it. So this physical bond that was created from an emotional, spiritual bond culminates in a physical relationship, a sexual relationship, and produces a new flesh, a new being, a child. Now, I realize that there are probably couples here tonight that are unable to have children despite living holy lives and maintaining a holy marriage. And I don't want this to be seeming like it's a condemnation toward you to not have children. The normative pattern, though, we find in Scripture is that a marital relationship produces a sexual relationship which produces procreation, the continuance of what God began in creation. But throughout Scripture, God was said to have kept holy couples barren, that the woman's womb was closed for God's purposes. So just because you're unable to have children doesn't mean that God doesn't like you, God doesn't love you. It means he has a plan for you, and part of that plan includes not having children at this time. So I want you to know that if that's you, my heart breaks for you, because I know I love my children. But I want you to know that your marriage is still holy and it still is a wonderful picture of God's holiness. Marriage is holy because God founded it. He oversaw the first wedding. That marriage reflects God's unity and he set that marriage up as holy. And Genesis 2.25 says, Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. What a great picture. But then, of course, everything changed. Marital fidelity was fractured along with the rest of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world, 
and that affects every area of our lives, but I think probably one of the most significant ways is that it affects our relationships with one another, especially with those closest to us. The shame that we see is non-existent in chapter 2 becomes evident in chapter 3. They realized they were naked. They hid themselves. Adam immediately began to to blame Eve and also to blame God in the process of blaming Eve. Hey, you gave me that wife. You introduced me to her. It's your fault. And then, of course, Eve blamed the serpent. So there's this blame game going on. And then part of the consequence that God gives to the woman is that found in Genesis 3, verse 16, where it says, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And then comes Genesis chapter 4, where we find Cain's descendant, Lamech, took for himself two wives rather than the one. And thus polygamy was born and the holy union was desecrated. God's plan for the marriage was violated. And this became a recurrent issue throughout the rest of history, even among God's chosen people. See, Abraham sought to fulfill God's plan for him to have a child by going outside of his relationship with his wife, Sarah, to have a relationship with her slave. And that produced a child that was illegitimate. And God rejected that product And then his grandson, Jacob, had 12 children by four different women. Judah then had two children by his daughter-in-laws. And Lot had children by his daughters. There's some messed up stuff happening in the Bible, y'all. But here's the point. The idea, the ideal of fidelity in marriage had become so fractured by the time that Moses gives these Ten Commandments that it was no longer for humanity, it was no longer sufficient for humanity to look back at what God had established because they were so far away from God's plan, they needed to be told explicitly, this is wrong. Marriage is for one man, for one woman. Do not commit adultery. And we find this command was given in the same way in both the Exodus account and the Deuteronomy version of the command. And it's... It assumes the sanctity of marriage as a divine institution. Marriage was and is to be viewed as relationship to God. Infidelity, therefore, falls under the purview of divine judgment. And God makes it clear there is to be no violation of the husband-wife relationship by outside intervention. The husband is to find sexual fulfillment in no one but his wife and the woman in no one but her husband. None other is allowed. There is one standard for marriage, and that is absolute fidelity. So what happens if someone breaks that command? Well, if you go to Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, it says this. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge this evil from Israel. So death was the God-given penalty for adultery. Why? Because it affects the community. It affects the people around you. 
And the punishment was for both parties involved. It didn't matter if you're the man or the woman. There's no double standard. The man can't get away with it while the woman is shamed, which tends to be what happens in our culture. The, if we know a man's going around and having sex with a lot of women. Culture says, man, what a player. But if the woman does it, they say, what a harlot. And I'm going to use that term because it's nicer. But the reason for the strictness of the sexual laws was that Israel com was commanded to be holy. They were to be a people who were set apart from the people of Canaan. The Canaanites whose pagan practices involved sexual acts in the temple with the temple prostitutes. But yet, we find that even when God gave this command, fencing the practice and threatening death for breaking it, the people of God still failed to uphold this law because fidelity was still fractured. Even David, the greatest king of all Israel, failed. He had married many women. He had many wives, and yet he still sought a relationship with Bathsheba. And by her, he had a son named Solomon, and Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we find throughout Israel's history, men modified the law by allowing a man to divorce his wife for near any reason, and adultery still seemed to run rampant. So despite the clarity of the command, and despite the, the example we have in Genesis, sinful humanity still developed a way to attempt to blur the lines of what is right and what is wrong. So they came up with the idea of polygamy. Polygamy is being married to more than one person, usually referring to a man having multiple wives. And this was one of the ways that they tried to circumvent this law because according to that, if you're married, it's not adultery, right? Right? It does not adulterate God's plan, right? Because they're still, you're still having sex only within marriage. But the reality is it does adulterate God's original plan. But in Old Testament times, polygamy was allowed by God for a time. But it was never endorsed by him. And if you look throughout all the accounts, it always brought trouble. Another way they tried to get around this was by divorce and remarriage. That was another way they tried to circumvent and blur the lines. Said if, if a man has an affair, he's committing adultery. That's obvious. However, if a man were to divorce his wife and marry the other woman, then he would maintain his legal footing. And in fact, we find that in most modern societies, this has been the case. Well, I'll just divorce her and I'll go marry the new one that I have found that I like. But the New Testament speaks to both of these. And we find from this, there's a fountain from which flows marital fidelity. So let's first look at the question of divorce. What did Jesus have to say? Luke chapter 16, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman who is divorced from her husband also commits adultery. And then Mark chapter 10 he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So, according to Jesus, a legal divorce does not nullify 
the covenant that was made between the man and the woman and him. If someone lusts after another and divorces his or her spouse to seek a relationship with the other person, it's still adultery. The marital bond is intended to last one's lifetime. Legal divorce does not release you from the bond of marriage, except for, Jesus says, in one instance, and that is adultery. Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. So the only time Jesus allowed divorce was when the other party had been unfaithful to the marital vow. But notice that this is a concession. Jesus doesn't say, you must do this. He says, you're allowed to do this. But the ideal would be reconciliation with your spouse. And God commanded the prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman. And this is a great picture of God's grace toward his people Hosea chapter 1. When the Lord spoke to Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. And so after Hosea's wife had abandoned him, she ended up naked and on display for all people to see as she was being sold as a slave. Because that's what happens when you commit adultery. You end up a slave to sin. But Hosea came and found her. And we would think as we look at this, especially in in a modern idea, she's getting what she deserves. He should just leave her, walk away. Let her be sold as a slave. But instead, Hosea does what God commanded in chapter number 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. And I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. So Hosea then turns to bring condemnation against Israel and show how Israel had been the adulterous wife to God, her husband. And he calls them to repentance. Hosea's marriage was a picture of God's marriage to Israel. And God was the husband. Israel was his adulterous wife. But God demonstrated his love and his forgiveness toward Israel. And by doing so, points us to do the same. But what about the question of polygamy? Polygamy is not outright condemned throughout the scriptures, although there's some places where scholars would say, I think that's what that is. And I'm not going to speculate on the reasons why God allowed polygamy to take place, although many do. But what we do find is when we turn to the New Testament, we get some instructions that implicitly teach that it's wrong. In giving the qualifications for elders and deacons, Paul indicated that both deacons and elders, bishops, pastors should be the husband of one wife. And there's debates on what exactly that means, but what is clear, you can't have more than one at the time. And while that's specifically applied to church leaders, the idea of Paul writing this is that 
the church leaders are supposed to exemplify what the rest of the church is doing already. And so if it's for the leaders, it's also for the rest of the church. So therefore, the church members should also not participate in polygamy. Another great Pauline instruction on marriage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The church at Corinth had some issues regarding sexuality. If you remember, they had uh, in chapter 5, Paul says there's a man there that is uh, living with his mother-in-law or his father's wife. And he says, you need to get, get that out of the church. Stop that. Don't let that happen. So they had some issues regarding sexuality going on. Well, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 too, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. In both of these cases, they're singular. And so Paul presents a subtle view that we find, that marriage is supposed to be one man and one woman. And he writes against sexual immorality of any kind. In fact, just a few verses back, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, that a person commits is outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral is committing sin against his own body. And interestingly, both Paul and Jesus expanded the act of adultery. Paul says here to flee any kind of sexual immorality. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're married. Flee from sexual immorality. Why does he say that? Well, look at the next couple of verses there in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. But ultimately, while Paul expanded the concept of adultery to include sexual immorality of any kind, Paul made it bigger and Jesus made it deeper. Matthew chapter 5, we find the condition of the heart is what determines our fidelity. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus habitually looked beyond the letter of the law to look at the intent of the law, the heart of the law. And Roy Honeycutt, who was a professor at, South, uh, at Southern Seminary, um, wrote this. The interior thoughts toward immorality warp the emotions. If you dwell on sin, it changes the way you think. It skews your view of what's going on around you. A good example of this can be found with King David's son, Amnon. Amnon became infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. He claimed to be in love with her. And so it says he dwelt so much on the thought of being with her sexually that it made him physically ill. He wanted her so bad. So he and his friend came up with this plan that would allow that to happen. So uh, Amnon pretended to be sick. He laid there, asked that Tamar come in and take care of him. So she unsuspectingly did. Came in, take, took care of him, and the plan worked. He was able to uh, rape his half-sister. But once he had had his way with her, before he'd said, I love her. I must have her. But once he had had his way with her, Scripture says he then hated her 
It wasn't love, but it was lust. He just wanted to use her because she was beautiful. James chapter 1, James writes, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And this is exactly what we see with Amnon and Tamar. Tamar, who had been defiled by her half-brother, was then unable to marry. So she lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother, not Amnon, but Absalom, her full brother. Absalom desired revenge against Amnon, so he killed him. And Absalom later decided to rebel against his father David, the king of Israel, tried to overthrow his rule, and that eventually led to him being killed. The sin of Amnon not just led to his death, but led to the death of his line and led to the death of Absalom. The thoughts of your heart eventually reveal themselves in what you do. If you lust after another person, eventually you're more than likely going to give in to that. And that adultery will wound your marriage, maybe even kill it. It'll create conflict in your family, and eventually it'll break down the society. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. But ultimately, we find that marriage comes to an end. We find it's ultimately fulfilled but we pledge death to do us part because eventually it will end or Christ will return. And Jesus himself taught, Matthew chapter 22, For in the res resurrection they will neither marry nor will they be given in marriage, but they'll be like angels in heaven. So if, if marriage is temporary, why does the Bible make such a big deal about it? If it's not going to exist when Jesus comes back, why do we worry about it? Why is adultery such a big deal? Well, we go back to the beginning. God established marriage as a picture of his nature. He created them as male and female in his image. But further than that, it's an image of Christ and the church. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 that he was writing of submission and the way the husband and wives are to treat one another. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her on the cross to sanctify the church. That means he died to purify all of us and bring us together as the church. Wives are also to submit to their husbands just as Christ submits, or sorry, just as the church submits to Christ. We identify that Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul points back to Genesis in establishing the reason. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 33. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, he says. But what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. And the marriage covenant is to be upheld because it demonstrates the way that Christ loves his church. He's faithful to his church. He loves his church. He loves us. And the church is called to be faithful to him. And the picture is used of the marriage of the lamb and the bride. 
Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead to purify his bride, to make her clean, to make her free from sin, and ultimately to bring us to him. Revelation 19 speaks of Christ as the rider on the white horse. He's the white knight coming to defeat all of our enemies, all of his enemies. And in that same passage that celebrates the marriage of the Lamb, we find the ultimate fulfillment of marital fidelity in the marriage of Christ and his church. So friends, marriage is important. It was established by God as a holy institution. It is holy matrimony. He repeatedly calls for fidelity to the covenant of marriage because ultimately marriage is a gospel presentation. It reflects God's nature. It pictures Christ and his church. And we are called to honor marriage. Even if you're not married, you're called to honor marriage. Scripture says that if you're not married, but you're engaged in a relationship with someone who is, then you're also committing adultery. Marriage is to be honored by all. So if you're here and you're experiencing temptation for sexual immorality, Scripture says you must resist. Flee from it. Do not dwell on it. Do not give in to it, but rather remember that the power of the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you if you're a believer, and God has given you the power to overcome that. If you're here tonight and you are engaged in a in an adulterous relationship, whether it, that be physically engaged, sexual engaged, or if it's emotionally engaged or spiritually engaged with someone who is not your spouse, then you need to stop it. You need to end it now. Don't allow that sin to continue. If you're here tonight and you've been engaged in an adulterous relationship previously, but you've repented of that, you've confessed that sin, know that Christ has forgiven you. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that includes adultery, sexual immorality of any kind. But sometimes you may still feel guilt over that. You may still feel guilty because you're dealing with the consequences of that. You're dealing with a broken family. You're dealing with hurt feelings. But know that if you've confessed it to God, You've repented of it. Your sin has been forgiven. There's no need for further guilt. So let go of the guilt and give it to God. And finally, if you have committed adultery and you have not repented, then what you need to do is to confess and seek forgiveness. First of all, to God. Remember what David said. Against you and against you alone, O God, have I sinned. First of all, it's a, it's a sin against God. You must seek his forgiveness, but also you must request the forgiveness of the person that you sinned against, both of them, both the one that you engaged with and the one you affronted. Seek their forgiveness, but most importantly, seek God's forgiveness. The eroding effects of adultery have scarred and corroded every generation. It's time for us as Christians to step up to say no more. Scripture says, do not commit adultery. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926- 
1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.